I'm Mark O'Connell, and you're listening to Far-Fetched, a podcast about my largely unpaid but mostly enjoyable career as a writer. I have a confession to make. I have a new favorite Star Trek episode. I never would have thought this was possible. For years and years and years, there was kind of a three-way tie for my favorite episodes of Star Trek, the original series. Now, I'm just talking about the original series here. And that three-way tie was between Shore Leave, The Doomsday Machine, and The Devil in the Dark. If you haven't seen these three episodes, I, I... recommend you run out and see them as soon as you're done listening to this. So for the longest time, those three were my favorites, but now all of a sudden, out of the blue, a couple of days ago, it just hit me. The Balance of Terror. The Balance of Terror is the best episode of Star Trek ever, in my opinion. And I'll tell you why. I wasn't planning on doing this. I was I was going to leap right into uh, pitching my unsold story pitches uh, to you in this episode. But this thing with Balance of Terror has really gotten a hold of me, and I need to talk about it for a little bit. So Balance of Terror was the 14th episode in the first season of Star Trek back in 1966-1967. 14th episode. So everything about Star Trek was brand new to viewers. There were many, many things that we know from Star Trek lore and Star Trek canon that we just take for granted that people watching the show in the first 14 episodes had no clue. Everything was new to them and very little had been revealed in those first few episodes. One of the things that makes Balance of Terror such a standout episode is that it is the first episode in which we meet the Romulans. The Romulans were... Uh, antagonists to the United Federation of Planets. They were a evil, warlike race of aliens. And in the first act of this episode, Balance of Terror, we conveniently learn a little backstory about the Romulans. The Federation of Planets and the Romulan Empire, turned out, were at war a hundred years ago. And the war was settled, and a neutral zone was established between the Federation's space and the, and the Romulan Empire space. And no one dared cross into or over the, the neutral zone for fear of being wiped out by the enemy. So pretty interesting setup with the Romulans. But there's a twist. Because this war took place 100 years ago, There was no visual technology, supposedly, whereby the captains of the two ships could communicate to each other on view screens. So to this day, when the episode begins, no one from the Federation of Planets has ever laid eyes on a Romulan. We have no idea what they look like. So pretty interesting setup for a show. We also learn that this guy who's sitting at the navigation station on the bridge of the Enterprise has got a grudge against the Romulans because several people from his... uh, family back in the day were killed in the war. And so this guy has always believed that Romulans are these bloodthirsty evil aliens, and he is quite clearly antagonistic towards them. But the Enterprise is sent out towards the neutral zone because a a series of star bases along the borders of the neutral zone have been attacked by an unseen menace. Something just appears out of nowhere, destroys the star base, and then disappears from whence it came. Of course, as always happens, the Enterprise is the closest ship in Starfleet to where this is going on, so they're sent to investigate. 
So the Enterprise arrives at the Romulan neutral zone, finds the wreckage of all these star bases that have just been destroyed, and actually see another star base get destroyed before their very eyes. But they also see that whatever destroyed the star base is invisible. They never saw where it came from or what it is or where it went after the attack. They're completely bamboozled. Eventually, we find out that the reason nobody sees this ship coming and going is because it has a cloaking device. It has technology that can make it invisible. And so our heroes on the Starship Enterprise catch a glimpse of a Romulan bird of prey just as it disappears after the attack. Now, a word about the Romulan bird of prey. Again, this is the first time we've ever heard of or seen the anything to do with the Romulans. So it's our first time seeing a Romulan spaceship. It was called a Romulan bird of prey. It was a white sort of crescent-shaped ship with two long arms extending out of either side holding up the engine nacelles. It looked a little like a bird of prey with its wings spread and in fact on the bottom of the spaceship there was a huge painting of a bright red bird of prey. I know this because when I was a kid, I built a model of this ship. <laughs> the Star Trek model kits were a really big deal back in the 60s. So I built a model of a Romulan bird of prey. So I feel like I, I'm pretty certain this is what a Romulan bird of prey is and always will be. We also get our first glimpse of a Romulan. And it turns out the Romulans look just like Vulcans. There's this great reveal where we see what's happening on the bridge of the Romulan ship. And we only see the captain from behind. But at the end of the shot, he turns around and faces the camera. And the Romulan ship's captain is revealed. Pointed eyebrows, pointed ears, just like a Vulcan. And the commander is played by the great actor Mark Leonard. I think Mark Leonard's always been a little underrated. He actually played a Romulan a Klingon, and a Vulcan. <laughs> he actually played, and he played Spock's father in a later episode of Star Trek, the original series. So Mark Leonard really established himself as part of Star Trek. Now, when it's revealed that Romulans look exactly like Vulcans, the crew member, and I can't remember his name, but the crew member sitting at the navigation console starts giving Spock the evil eye because he figures, oh, Romulans and Vulcans are alike. They must be in cahoots. They must both be the enemy. So the navigator starts bad-mouthing Spock on the bridge, and he really pisses off Kirk. And this is the first really cool moment for the characters. Kirk just whirls on this guy after he, after he casts a slur on Spock. And Kirk gets right up in the navigator's face, and he says, You keep your bigotry in your own quarters. There's no room for it on my bridge. Or words to that effect. And, of course, the navigator... Um, you never want to have Captain Kirk in your face shouting at you. So he backs down pretty quickly, but he keeps on giving Spock the evil eye. Second really awesome character mo moment is once Spock realizes that this guy equates him with Romulans and thinks he's evil, there's this really great moment where Spock just sort of leans over the navigation console, just as if he's checking up on this guy's work. And there's this really funny moment where the two men make eye contact and Spock sort of gives him a little bit of a sarcastic smile and then walks away. It's actually a laugh out loud moment, or it was for me. A little bit later, uh, Kirk is having a crisis. He, he, this has turned into a game of cat and mouse between the Enterprise and the Romulan bird of prey. And Kirk is worried about making a wrong move, making a wrong guess that will cost the lives of his crew. 
And at that moment, Dr. McCoy gives him some sage advice, and he just says, look, there are millions of planets and galaxies in the universe, and there are billions and billions of life forms on all those, all those planets. Don't destroy the one called Kirk. It's a great moment. It's really great doctorly advice, and there you have it. All three of the main characters get their really great scene, their really great moments with great dialogue. It's one of the things that makes this episode so fun. Now, I mentioned before, it's turned into a cat and mouse game, right? Well, it turns out the script for Balance of Terror was inspired, we'll say inspired, by a World War II action movie called uh, The Enemy the Enemy Below or The Enemy Be- Beneath, which tells the story of the commander of a United States Navy destroyer in locked in a cat and mouse game with a German U-boat. And you see the parallel. The German U-boat can disappear underwater, disappearing from sight from the American ship, just as the Romulan ship can go behind its cloaking device and disappear from sight from the Enterprise. So it's kind of a clever reworking of this, this war movie. And that's exactly how the episode plays out. The, the two ships are, are playing cat and mouse. The two captains, it turns out, are sort of brothers under the skin. They both think the same way. They keep on anticipating each other's strategic moves in this really, in this really fun uh, dynamic that they establish in, in the show. So, this game of cat and mouse continues between Captain Kirk on the Enterprise and the Romulan commander on the Romulan Bird of Prey until Kirk finally outguesses the Romulan and hits the death blow, fires the death blow at the Romulan Bird of Prey. And at that moment, just as the Romulan ship is falling to pieces, Kirk and the Romulan commander establish visual contact. And the Romulan commander, who we have learned during the course of this episode, is very thoughtful and introspective. He's, he's a very interesting character in his own right. And he tells Captain Kirk, as his ship is disintegrating, that he regrets that they met under such circumstances because in another universe, the Romulan commander says, we might have called each other friend. And then the Romulan ship is destroyed. So, no friendship. But it's a very nice moment for the character and a very nice moment for the show. After that, what happens? Well, going back to the story with Spock and the bigoted navigator, the navigator has had to get up and leave his post on the bridge to go down to the phaser control room. Oh, and this is another interesting bit that I really loved. When he, when he leaves the navigator's console, guess who takes his place? Lieutenant Uhura. Lieutenant Uhura, played by Nichelle Nichols, the communications officer on the bridge of the Enterprise, she takes over the navigation console. I've never seen that before or since. I, I think this is probably the only time that Uhura sat up front in the bridge in, in basically what is a command post. At any rate, this guy, the, the, the original navigator, goes down to the phaser banks and there's damage to the phaser banks and poison gas is leaking. And this guy, the navigator, starts to succumb to the poison gas. Well, guess who comes to his rescue? Mr. Spock, the guy he's bad, been bad-mouthing all through the story. Spock saves the guy. He ends up in sick bay, And in one of the final scenes of the show, the bigot guy is, is in a bed in sick bay, And Kirk and Spock and McCoy are all gathered around. They're happy to see he's doing okay. And the guy is thanking Spock profusely. And of course, he's eating crow because he had been so shitty to Spock throughout the whole episode. So he swallows his pride. He thanks Spock for saving him. And Spock just delivers the knockout punch. 
Spock just sort of raises an eyebrow and says, It would have been a waste to lose such a highly trained Starfleet officer. I only did what was logical. And it's a great, I'm not getting that line exactly right, but that's pretty much the way it comes out. And it's pretty damn funny. Oh, did I also mention the episode begins with a wedding on board the Starship Enterprise? That's also something you don't see very often. Back to the Romulan Birds of Prey. This is what I want to say about the Romulan Birds of Prey. As I've mentioned over and over again, we see them first in this episode, episode 14 of season one. Throughout the series, throughout the three-season run of Star Trek, the original series, the Romulans are flying around in Romulan Birds of Prey. Somehow or another, by the third Star Trek movie, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, I believe, Suddenly, it's the Klingons flying birds of prey, and the Klingons have a cloaking device. And when I first saw that, I was like, okay, you can't do that. You can't just suddenly take the the stuff from one alien race and give it to another alien race and act like nothing ever happened. It's pretty fucking bizarre. It's the most jarring moment in Star Trek. I've never bought it. It's always kind of bugged me. Because the, having the Romulans have the birds of prey, I mean, it was just kind of perfect. It was a perfect match for them. And then to have it suddenly be sh- like, and I think later on they, they established a backstory where someone, someone from Klingon stole the cloaking technology from the Romulans or something. But, you know, they were just covering their ass on that one. Sorry. So that just about wraps up my critique of Balance of Terror, and I hope you understand now why it is my new favorite Star Trek episode. Go watch it. Get on Paramount Plus and watch it. It's well worth it. Now to get on to reading one of my unsold Star Trek pitches. I have I have such a huge pile. <laughs> it's really crazy. But I picked one randomly out of the pile to read today. The only thing I wrote on the top of the page is Picard number four. Now, I don't know if that means it was the number four out of the four stories I pitched in that session. That's probably what it means. Here's how I would do my pitches. At the time I started writing uh, my Star Trek scripts, I was living in a small town in southern Wisconsin called Monroe. Monroe is mainly famous for uh, hosting cheese days every two years. Monroe is sort of the epicenter of Wisconsin's cheese-making industry. And so every two years, they throw cheese days. And I have to tell you, it sounds dumb, but it's a lot of fun. Lots of deep fat fried cheese curds, lots of locally brewed beer. Uh, You can't beat it, but I digress. So I'm pitching to Star Trek. Where am I doing this? Well, I'm sitting at the kitchen table at my house in Monroe, Wisconsin. I'm sitting at the kitchen table... I've waited till a time when the house is quiet, probably alone at the house for the most part, um, just so I could concentrate without any distractions. And I've got four documents in front of me, my four story pitches, because as I've mentioned before, they allowed you a maximum of four for a pitch. So I would sit down at my kitchen table uh, with my little cordless phone and call a number in California and talk to somebody at Paramount Studios, and they would put me through to the Star Trek offices, and I would uh, get on the line with one of the writers, and I never knew who it would be. Uh, Brandon Braga, Joe Minoski, Renee Echeverria, Robert Hewitt-Wolf, Ira Bear, the showrunner. 
Uh, I don't know if I missed anybody. I probably did. But I never knew who I'd be talking to. But um, I'd get on the phone with one of the producers and I'd go through my four pitches. And generally, I would get an immediate response on all four. And as I've mentioned before, usually it was a thumbs down um, for a lot of different reasons, as I've also discussed before. But sometimes there'd be a story where I'd get done with a pitch and wait breathlessly for the producer's reaction. And he'd say, you know, I kind of like this one. I'm going to take it upstairs and see what happens. So that was always good news. When the producer, when the producer said, I'm going to take this one upstairs, that was always the best news possible. It meant that he was going to share it with the other producers and writers and that they were going to actually give it serious consideration for a future episode of the show. So now here I am like 30 years later, instead of sitting at the kitchen table, I'm sitting at my ham radio table in the basement of my, my house in, outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Lots changed since then, but the story is still the same. I'm going to start reading the story entitled Picard Number 4. And again, this is the first time I've read this in many, many, many years. So I, I, it, could, it could suck. For all I know, it could be a piece of crap. I just don't know, but I'm going to read it now, and then I'll give you my reactions when I'm done reading it. We begin with the teaser. Picard is in his office writing a letter to his nephew back on Earth, responding to his nephew's inquiries about enrolling in Starfleet Academy. Yes, this is true. Picard does have a nephew named René. Picard writes that there is no finer course a young person can choose than Starfleet, and that he would be proud and happy to sponsor his nephew's application for enrollment. He writes about the many fascinating experiences one has serving on a starship, mentioning the Enterprise's current mission to oversee negotiations over a territorial conflict on a distant planet, and how he is looking forward to the challenge. Finally, he cautions his nephew not to tell his father anything about their correspondences just yet, promising that he, Picard, will talk with his brother, Robert, as soon as he's able. End teaser. That takes us to Act 1. The officer's briefing reveals that the Enterprise is en route to the planet Demetra to implement a truce between the two races that inhabit the world. The Jeska and the Kinnear have for years been waging a war for a vast territory on Demetra, to which both claim possession. The challenge facing Picard is that Demetra is a gas giant, and the Jeska and the Kinnear take the form of intelligent gas bags. It may sound as though I'm trying to be funny there, but I, I really wasn't. That was seriously how I wrote the story. Also, by the way, thinking of funny names for alien races and planets is always one of the best parts about preparing a pitch for Star Trek. So, back to Act 1. Data explains an additional complication. The Jeska and the Kinnear exist in a time scale that seems infinite to the humans. Their simplest thoughts and movements, although occurring in normal time to them, can take hours or days to a human. It will, for instance, take a full day for the Jeskanian and Kinnearian envoys to deliver their greetings to the Enterprise. In the hours he has before the Enterprise arrives at Demetra, Picard talks with Counselor Troy about the best way to approach his brother Robert about his nephew's request. He explains to her that he is extremely wary of taking too great a role in his nephew's life, feeling that this would be an infringement on his brother's relationship with his son. Troy, having read the nephew's letter, informs Picard that his nephew is suffering from severe hero worship for his uncle, and that he could do his nephew a great deal of good by taking a role in his life. Troy's assessment strengthens his resolve to speak with his brother, 
although he admits that he does not relish the idea. After Troy leaves his office, Picard sinks into deep thought about how best to approach Robert. His reverie is interrupted by his disturbance in the air, signaling the appearance of a tall, handsome man a few feet from his desk. Picard rises in alarm as he summons security and draws his phaser, but the man raises his hands in a gesture of peace and announces to Picard that he is Picard's nephew. End Act 1. Act 2. Worf and a team of guards burst into Picard's office, phasers drawn, but Picard orders them to stay put. He then asks the intruder to explain himself further, and the man repeats that he is Picard's nephew. If he has timed his arrival correctly, he says, Picard has just received his letter inquiring about Starfleet Academy, and he guesses Picard is undoubtedly worried about how to handle the matter. Picard is not sure if he believes the man, but he tells Worf that he and his team may leave. Before he leaves, Worf insists on searching the intruder, and the man does not protest. Satisfied that Picard is not in immediate danger, Worf and the security team leave. Picard puts away his phaser and bids the stranger to sit, which he does. Picard asks why he is there, and the man says that he has come back from the future to prevent his uncle from making a decision that will ruin his career. Picard scoffs, but the man explains that Picard will very soon make a decision regarding the dispute between the Jeska and the Kinnear that will have disastrous consequences for the planet Demetra and for Picard himself. Picard asks what this decision might be, but the man will not say until the time is right. A skeptical Picard quizzes the man on family history, and his answers are unerring. Picard asks about the man's clothes. He is not wearing a Starfleet uniform, Therefore, Picard assumes that his nephew never did make it to Starfleet Academy. No, the man replies, he was not allowed to enter Starfleet Academy. His father forbade it, and in the end, Picard himself would not sponsor his nephew. Picard grows doubtful, and the man suggests that he can prove his identity in sickbay. He and Picard go there, and Dr. Crusher performs a DNA match on them, verifying that they are indeed related. Before Picard can pursue the matter further, however... He is called away to receive the Jeskanian and Canarian envoys, a duty that will occupy him for the rest of the day. Before Picard leaves, the man asks Crusher whether the atmosphere chamber has been readied on the ship, and Crusher replies that it is ready to be occupied by the two envoys. The man asks what would happen to a human who was exposed to the simulated Dimetron atmosphere for 2.3 seconds. Crusher replies that a human might not suffocate in such a brief exposure, but that the pressure would begin to crush his body within the first two seconds. The man turns to Picard and explains why he was not allowed to enter Starfleet. His uncle Jean-Luc was trapped by a Demetran envoy, perhaps one, perhaps both, he cannot say, in the atmosphere chamber for 2.3 seconds. He lived, but there was not much left of either his body or his soul. Starfleet Medical could have rebuilt him, but he refused to be borgified, as he described it. He chose instead to return to the family vineyards on Earth to live out his remaining years under his family's care. With Jean-Luc's ruined life as an example, Robert would not allow his son to enter Starfleet, and Jean-Luc was so bitter and dispirited that he would not sponsor his nephew. With that explanation, the man bids a shaken Picard to go to the bridge and greet the Demetran envoys. End Act 2. Act 3. On the bridge, Picard has received the day-long greetings from the envoys, and he now invites them to beam aboard the ship to begin their meeting. He explains to the Dimetrans that they will present their arguments to the ship's computer, 
and when they are done, the computer will transpose their words so that he may hear them in what for him is real time, just as the computer is now transposing his words for them. As they beam into the atmosphere chamber and begin to make their opening arguments, Picard finds his nephew sitting in ten forward with Dr. Crusher. Crusher excuses herself when Picard arrives, and the man remarks that she is just as beautiful as Jean-Luc always described her. Picard is surprised and a little embarrassed, and the man explains that Uncle Jean-Luc lived at the vineyards for many years and that they spent every evening talking. Picard's only escape from his pain was to tell his nephew about his voyages aboard the Enterprise. The man goes on to describe a particular story his uncle had told him about an encounter with the time-traveling Vorgons from Captain's Holiday. The young boy's imagination took off with the possibilities, and the two of them concocted a scenario where the nephew might someday find the mysterious Vorgons who would help him to travel back in time to avert his uncle Jean-Luc's tragedy. The man explains that it took him 20 years to locate the Vargons, and that when he did, they were attracted to the idea of helping Picard, whom they remembered from their encounter years earlier. That, he tells Picard, is how he got here. Picard points out that the man stands to gain personally from altering the course of events, and the nephew admits that if he can save Picard from his tragedy, he might in his past have been allowed to enter Starfleet Academy, and might in his present be serving aboard or even commanding a starship. This candor, more than anything else, convinces Picard that the man is telling the truth. But when Picard presses him for more information about his fateful decision, the man flatly declares that he cannot say more until the time is right. He has arrived before he is needed simply because he knew he would need time to gain Picard's confidence. Picard asks why he cannot say more, and he says that the Vorgons have strictly cautioned him about revealing information before it is necessary. For if Picard knows too much too soon, the course of events may be altered more than is necessary. The Vorgons learned this lesson in their encounter with Picard, when they revealed so much information that they created a self-fulfilling prophecy. Picard is frustrated by his nephew's refusal to tell him more, but cannot fault the reasoning behind it. Later, we find Picard meeting with the Dimetron envoys as they conclude their opening arguments. The situation Picard faces is this. The contested territory is actually two territories, namely the two poles of the planet. Both areas are rich in hydrogen and ripe for mining. Whoever controls the territories and the mining stands to profit handsomely from sales of the hydrogen. Furthermore, both parties seem to have equally valid claims to the territory. The Jeska have already invested considerable time and energy into exploring the regions, but the Kinnear have been promised these lands by their deity. Neither party denies the legitimacy of the other's claim, but each insists that his claim takes precedent over the other. The hostility between the two envoys becomes apparent when they conclude their opening arguments with a demand that Picard decide which of the two races has a legitimate claim to the poles of Demetra, and Picard suddenly appreciates the situation in its entirety. End Act 3 Act 4 Picard meets with Riker, Data, and Troy to go over the two claims to the mining rights. You see how I worked some of the other characters into the storyline? It's always important to give everybody, everybody at least a, a scene or two. Data produces an image of the Dimetron gascape, and they can see both Jessica and Kinnear hanging peacefully in the clouds. The officers present Picard with a variety of objective assessments, all of which point to the same conclusions. The demands for an all-or-nothing solution are pure posturing, it is patently obvious that the only reasonable way to settle the dispute and preserve the truce they are observing 
is to grant one pole to the Jeska and the other to the Kinnear. And yet Picard refuses to commit himself to a decision, pressing his puzzled officers to look beyond this obvious settlement and see if there isn't some perspective they haven't yet considered. Later, Picard's nephew comes to him in his office, and Picard tells him that he has heard the Demetrian's opening arguments and is now aware of the decision he must make. He tells his nephew that he may already know too much about the future. He finds he is second-guessing himself and his officers on the Dimetrian decision to the point where he no longer trusts his own judgment. The question of which solution is just and fair has become for him completely confused with the question of which solution will save him, and he finds himself retreating from solutions as quickly as he decides upon them. His nephew apologizes profusely. He felt compelled to reveal as much as he did only to establish his credibility with his uncle, but he may have gone too far. He promises to remain uninvolved from here on out if Picard will promise to tell him of his decision before he tells the Demetrans, and Picard agrees. When his nephew leaves, Picard signals Earth. His brother Robert appears on his viewscreen, surprised and pleased by the sight of Jean-Luc. They exchange warm, if reserved, greetings, and Picard begins to inquire about his nephew's character. Robert, or maybe they pronounced it Robert. Robert guesses that the inquiries have something to do with the boy's desire to enroll at Starfleet Academy, and he surprises Jean-Luc by confessing that he is aware of his son's letter to his uncle, and that he approves. Picard does not reveal his true motives for inquiring, and is grateful for the cover. He finds out that his young nephew is exceedingly honest and generous to a fault, and for this he is grateful. Picard says goodbye to his brother with a promise that he will sponsor his nephew's application. This has done little to clear Picard's mind, and he welcomes the distraction when Riker and Dr. Crusher pay him a call. Riker has just spoken with the doctor, and she thought she should look in on the captain's stress level. Picard explains his dilemma to them both. He feels there's only one possible solution to the Dementrian dispute, and yet he knows that his nephew will try to prevent his choosing it. Crusher has spent some time talking with Picard's nephew, and admits that she distrusts him in his story. And Riker entertains the possibility that he may simply be a profiteer working for either the Jeska or the Kinnear. End Act 4. Act 5. Picard is once more in the atmosphere chamber, thanking the envoys for answering his questions about their dispute and telling them that he hopes to reach a decision soon. It is understood that Picard will present the decision in their midst while in the atmospheric chamber. Remembering his nephew's chilling warning, Picard does not look forward to presenting his decision from a position of such vulnerability, and so he arranges to have Worf standing by when he enters the chamber again later that day. Picard goes to his quarters to speak with his nephew and finds him to be on edge. Picard admits that he has begun to have doubts about the man's story, but he nonetheless wishes to present his decision to him first and then hear him out. The man appears grateful and is not at all surprised when Picard tells him that he will grant the rights to one pole to each of the Demetrian races. Sounding as though he were reading from a history book, the man recounts the tragedy that results from this decision. He explains that the Jeska and the Kinnear share a unique view of their world. Since Demetra is a gas, not a terrestrial world, he says, there is no such thing as what Picard would think of as a surface, no notions of interior or exterior, simply varying densities of gas. Picard understands all this, but his nephew goes on to reveal a greater significance to this unusual worldview. 
Because of it, both races consider the poles of Demetra to be the top and bottom of a huge cylindrical core that runs along the planet's axis. Thus, the two poles are not separate territories to the Jeska and Kinnear, as Picard and his officers have all assumed, but are rather the two visible regions of the same territory. For this reason, both the Jeska and the Kinnear consider compromise, dividing the poles, an unforeseen affront. The only decision they would both accept peacefully, therefore, is one that grants sole possession to one or the other race. Unaware of this, Picard decides on a solution of compromise. The envoys are displeased, and either one or both of them, the blame was never ascertained, lashes out at the force shield that protects Picard from the Demetran atmosphere, and he's crippled. In the atmosphere of Demetra, all-out war is declared, and over the ensuing decades, the Jeska and Kinnear all but wipe each other out, and Picard returns to Earth a broken man. This can all be averted, he concludes, if Picard grants his sole possession to the Kinnear, whose deity has promised them the land, and whose religious beliefs are respected by the Jeska. Picard is swayed, but unmoved. He is being asked to take too much on faith. He has seen the Jeska and the Kinnear in the clouds of Demetra, coexisting peacefully under truce, and cannot believe that an imposed compromise would send them to war. He fervently wishes that his nephew could offer him some proof that what he says is true, for without proof he cannot alter his decision. Faced with the challenge of presenting irrefutable proof, Picard's nephew reminds him that the Dimetrans live on an almost infinite timeline, and that what appears peaceful to Picard is in reality the preparation for war. To prove his point, the man calls up the image of the Dimetran clouds on the viewscreen, and then transports himself and Picard a week into the future. Picard sees on the viewscreen that the giant gas creatures that looked so peaceful a moment earlier are now entwined in what appears to be mortal combat. They jump ahead another week and the Jeska has killed the Kinnear. Another week and it is attacking another Kinnear. The man explains that this is the future that exists now, the future that is created by Picard's decision of compromise. Shaken, Picard asks to be returned to his present so that he can give the envoys his decision. Although he still appears to be uncertain, Picard enters into the atmosphere chamber with Worf standing outside at the ready. He addresses the two envoys, telling them that he is granting sole possession of the poles to the Kinnear. He holds his breath for a moment, expecting his shield to be disrupted, but nothing happens. He bows and exits the chamber. When later in the day the two envoys inform him of their acceptance of his judgment, Picard's nephew prepares to return to the future. He and Picard exchange awkward thanks, and he vanishes. A moment later he reappears, wearing the uniform of a Starfleet officer, and tells his uncle that the Jeska and Kinnear are, in his new future, peaceful and thriving, and that he is proudly serving under Will Riker. He smiles and disappears once again, and Picard cannot help but smile. Later, Picard writes a new letter to his nephew, encouraging him to bring the question of Starfleet up with his father, and predicting that he will get a favorable reaction. Picard thinks for a moment, then writes that he is honored to be taking even a small role in his nephew's life, since his nephew has already taken such an important role in his own. The End You may have noticed that that was an exceptionally long pitch. That's about six and a half pages. That's much longer than the typical pitch. This leads me to believe that this story is probably one that I pitched later on in the time that I was pitching to Next Generation because the fact that it's six and a half pages long and took me like 20 minutes to read suggests to me that I was feeling pretty confident that I could uh, make a pitch that was this detailed, that was this, that, that was this much thought through. 
and they would and they would hear me out and listen to the whole thing. So that tells me that this is probably one of my later pitches to next generation. And also, I think it indicates that my own confidence was growing uh, in my ability to tell a good to to tell a good story for next generation. Because I know to begin with, my pitches were <laughs> much shorter than this, much much shorter, much more concise to the point. Really. They only needed to be like three paragraphs, beginning, middle, and end. So the fact that I filled this story in with so much detail and thought it through so much, again, just really shows me that I, I really came a long way in the year or so, year and a half or so that I was pitching to Star Trek The Next Generation. It's kind of cool to see. And I have to say, I, I think it's kind of a cool story. Not like the last story that I read, the last unsold pitch, uh, the depressing story about Jordy saving someone's life for 24 hours. I really like this story. I wish I knew what the title was. <laughs> I wish I knew what I was going to call it. Just calling it Picard number four doesn't really seem to do it justice. But I think it gives us some good moments. Uh, it, it puts it puts Picard kind of in a vice. As, as the guys on the Seventh Rule podcast said recently when I was talking to them about unsold pitches to Star Trek. They pointed out the fact that I seem to like to torture my characters in the stories that I pitch to Star Trek. And, and I, I kind of do that in this story. But that's what that's that's good drama, right? Put your main character, put him in the vice, put him in a tight spot, put him in an, put him in an, the middle of an insoluble problem, put him in the middle of Kobayashi Maru and see what he or she does. So uh, that's Picard number four. I'll be looking forward to next episode of Farfetched when I will once again uh, pick a random uh, story pitch from the pile of my unsold pitches to Star Trek The Next Generation. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any comments, please leave them for me. Uh, otherwise, if you have uh, reviews, please post your reviews. Tell your friends. I know everybody in Star Trek world is going to be in Chicago this weekend, but I hope some people will... Uh, have a chance to see this podcast while they're in Chicago and spread the word. This is Mark O'Connell, and this has been Farfetched. Thanks for joining me. <laughs>